Hello, uh, welcome to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Um, so we've been kind of working towards this story for a while, I think. And in some ways, all of Lovecraft's stories prior to this one sort of work to it. The story obviously is Call of Cthulhu, uh, a story many people have come across, even people who aren't, um, I think, uh, deep Lovecraft fans. They are familiar with the story. Certainly Cthulhu has entered into the popular consciousness, probably more so than any other uh, creation of Lovecraft. I mean, the cults, I guess, kind of fit into that, but that's all in the story too. I mean, uh, I've talked before in this podcast how rare kind of cults actually are um you see them in like whisper and darkness and this story the festival but not as common uh at, traditions certainly are networks of knowledge and things like that but the the image of the cultists in the robes doing rituals to awaken uh, elder gods it's not that common it's more kind of in the lovecraftian kind of mythos that's developed since since he died and a lot of the pop culture aspects of, of Lovecraft, but it's something that's here. Uh, certainly, we have cults, not the role wearing cults so much, but the the cults that we're sort of familiar with from uh, the horror at Red Hook, the the miscegenated mixed blood uh, sailors, working class groups in the swamps uh, and in the port cities and things like that, kind of spreading ideas. So that certainly all comes together here. Uh, the cosmic horror certainly plays a major role here. Uh, what's so great about the Call of Cthulhu, I think, and, and why we're going to have to spend actually a couple of episodes on this story, not just one, as usual, is the is kind of the worldliness of it, the the interconnected global picture, right? And the narrative style, I think so many people, that's what's so great about this and why it's such a breakthrough story in, in some ways, is the narrative style of it, the nested uh, documents, right? The story really is, at a surface, just a guy, our narrator, uh, reading some old papers of his, of his uncle, uh, Angle, right? Um, what's his name? George Angle, right? He dies really old. Uh, he dies under mysterious circumstances, but he's old, so you know old people die. Uh, but he's looking through his papers, and he's just a basic philologist, philosopher, a professor of Semitic languages. But he has just one box, right? The Cthulhu cult box that he starts to read, and there's a couple things that kind of connect in a weird way there. And that's the first two-thirds of the story. And the last third of the story is set sometime later when our our narrator... Um, so it just finds this newspaper account uh, about uh, a Swedish sailor in the Pacific and the things that happened to him, and this kind of puts everything together. Uh, so there's not that much that happens on the surface of the story, but in the subtext of the story, there's a whole lot of interesting things happen all over the world. Um, and I think how it all puts together in these nested narratives, stories within stories, boxes within boxes, it's really a lot of fun. Um, to it. And in fact, there's a whole section of the story, which we'll get to today, which literally just is newspaper clippings from all over the world that Angle had put together for him, um, showing how all these things are connected globally or even cosmically. So it's a lot. It's a fun story. It's a famous story. It's a, it's it's one of his greatest. It's not immune from from some of quite a lot of the racial language that we've been kind of talking about in this podcast. And it certainly is not. We can't, you know, it's not as bad on the surface as something like the horror at Red Hook, but it's 
in other ways, it almost is as bad, right? It just doesn't get the same kind of bad press as at the horror of Red Hook because he doesn't pile on the 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 negative language that he uses in the horror at Red Hook. But here we are talking about. I mean, the people who sustain this cult are marginalized people. They are racial others. They are biracial, um, African American, Eskimo, Pacific Islanders, right? So once again, we see these cultists affiliated with the global underclass, right? And I, I think that's maybe a contribution here, where which it's there in Horror at Red Hook, but it's a little bit clearer here, is that the villain in Call of Cthulhu is not necessarily Cthulhu himself, who's just sort of a neutral uh, entity, right? That, that doesn't experience time like we do, doesn't experience existence like we do, is indifferent to our existence or, or not. Uh, although humans sort of, thrust onto Cthulhu their own dreams and visions, as we'll see particularly next episode. <clears throat> so that's all there, but it's it's really the global working class that's the villain in this story, uh, more so than I think, uh, maybe as much so as in the horror at Red Hook, but but uh, you know, it's even more global here. Like there was like the, the Kurds and the Syrians and, and that kind of specific population from the Middle East migrating to the United States, mixing with other working class groups. But it's much more contained geographically. This is very, very global, right? Again, like from the Eskimos to these uh, uh, biracial uh, sailors of Portuguese, of African-American descent, of Native American descent. In New Orleans, in Pacific Islanders, our nautical-looking Negro from the very first page, essentially, of the story. Uh, he's another element of this. So we get this global picture of a, of a villainous network of, of, of cultists, of believers, who are into some pretty dark and scary stuff. Um, so, yeah. So I think this episode, I just want to kind of uh maybe talk about my overall views of the call of cthulhu uh and talk about the horror in clay which is the very first part of the story and we'll kind of do that together i think as i go through the horror in clay i'll be establishing a lot of what's 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 here this story uh puts together a lot of what we talked about with uh supernatural horror and literature i did that in a previous episode so you can go back and look at that especially the first episode on that essay uh, there's a lot of overlap here, but also it's cosmic horror. And I think this story really connects together the cosmic horror and the the, the kind of more worldly horror, uh, as well as anything else he wrote uh, in his entire life, I think. So with that, let's, let's jump into this story a little bit. So uh, on the very first line of the story, <clears throat> we're given the, the narrator's name, the late Francis Wayland Thurston of Boston. Um, so this is, geez. again, this is all just papers, right? This, this whole thing. Um, now that seems to be, this, this I'm stealing from uh, Leslie Klinger's notes. Uh, Francis Whalen, president of Brown University, and Howard Thurston, a famous stage musician who died in 1936. So it seems to be a, a mixture of these different names. Um, and, you know, just another kind of... Uh, I mean, he's not as inquisitive, I think, as some of Lovecraft's heroes. He's not like setting an expedition to go to Antarctica or anything. He's he just sort of gets this by accident. He's just going through these papers, and he's a bit of an academic, a bit of a scholar, and he sort of accidentally falls on this. And I think that's another kind of creepy thing about the story. While a lot of other of his characters are actually like, let's go into that house, or let's go into the nameless city, or let's go into the tomb, like, and uh, or let's go into the dreamlands, as we'll see in um, 
the coming story and look for Kadath. That's you know, there's a lot, there's an act, there's a purposefulness to that. Or even in the case of Charles Dexter Ward, this guy just accidental, just falls into this. Um, we end up, with, we start with a lot of famous quotes here. Uh, he starts with a quote here, like a epigraph uh, uh, from Algernon Blackwood, of course, a major influence on Lovecraft, which is really about mythology, right? So we're told right away that this is about myth. This is a um, something that's, of course, very much on Lovecraft's mind at this time. He's thinking about the witch cults, and he's, he mentions these kind of books about mythology in this in this story. Uh, I'll get to that. Uh, the books that are like an, an Engels bookshelf uh, are about mythology and about the reality of mythological cults. Um, but Blackwood wrote, quote, of such great power or beings, there may be conceivably a survival, a survival of a hugely remote period when consciousness was manifest, perhaps in shapes and forms long since withdrawn before the tide of advancing humanity, forms of which poetry and legend alone have caught a flying memory and called them gods, monsters, mythical beings of all sorts and kinds, end quote. Um, so this is kind of like the primordial witch cults, right? That there is some survival of an earlier belief in time or that our beliefs are remnants of some experience that's in the primordial stage of, of humanity, right? Of course, I think Jungians will, will say, well, this is just uh, our expression of our collective anxieties and tensions of humanity. Sure, I'll take that. But of course, when we're reading these stories, we want to imagine something deeper like the Dagon right so in that sense we actually are reminded right away of Dagon which there's the direct implication that the belief in the god Dagon uh, a Semitic Middle Eastern god from Mesopotamian times is tied somehow to the specific uh, being this specific cult that goes way back in uh, human history or even pre-human history then we get uh into the story itself part one's called the horror and clay uh and it's kind of like part one of the mystery that our, our narrator sort of pieces together accidentally. Uh, this beginning here is all pure philosophy, though, and it's philosophy drawn really from the, it's the same kind of thinking that goes into the supernatural horn literature. By the way, speaking of that, this was written in September 1926, August, September 1926, published not for two years in Weird Tales in 1928, uh, rejected initially and then resubmitted uh, and published a little bit later. Uh, so it's it's... It's about the same time that he was writing supernatural horror and literature, uh, really in the aftermath of the New York uh, adventure that we've been talking so much about. In fact, we just uh, finished this trilogy of New York stories. So I'll read the whole thing. You probably heard it before. If you haven't, you know, pick up the Call of Cthulhu and read it because it's great. Um, but here's how it goes. The most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. We live in a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far. The sciences, each straining its, in its own direction, have hitherto harmed us little, but someday the piecing together of dissociated knowledge will open up such terrifying vices of reality and of our frightful position therein that we shall either go mad from the revelation or flee from the deadly light into the peace and safety of a new dark age. End quote. So obviously we're reminded of some of his commentary on new science and how new science is kind of breaking down our comfortable uh, reality. Uh, I think that's something we can't escape when we read Lovecraft, that he is in the context of, of a new scientific revolution, right? Not just in biology with Darwin, that's of course feeds into a lot of what he writes, but you know, new physics, right? That the, the world doesn't work the way we think it works and it's uncomfortable it's it's it dissociates us a little bit right so the response to this is the dark age and that's a good thing right so this is all about forgetting right at the beginning right um 
you know, we're constantly reminded throughout the story that these notes should have been burned. These connections should not have been made. He never should have read that newspaper account that led him to the horrible conclusion at the end that this was all real. This wasn't just the delusions of his of his uncle. Um, that gets to the end of the story. But it's it's all about forgetting, right? And, you know, I've been talking about that a lot on this podcast, but this is one of his clearest statements that we should close the book, should stop digging, all right? And here he connects it to science, right? Just the, the fact that we don't know the universe. Moving on, Theos, theosophists have guessed at the awesome grandeur of the cosmic cycle, cycle wherein our world and human race form transient incidents. They have hinted at strange survivals in terms which would freeze the blood if not masked by bland optimism. But it is not from them that there came the single glimpse of forbidden eons, which chills me when I think of it and maddens me when I dream of it. End quote. And then he talks about how he accidentally pieces this together. But again, ignorance is preferable. Forgetting is preferable. He even says... I think that the professor, too, intended to keep silent regarding the part he knew and that he would have destroyed his notes had not sudden death seized him, end quote. Not so sudden. He was, like, super old. He had plenty of time to destroy these notes, and he didn't. So, um, and this guy never actually destroyed the notes either. It's all there in, in the papers. But, oh well, we wouldn't have the story, right? They kind of have to survive for the story to, to exist. So then we learn where these, these notes come from. Um, uh, the death of his, it's his granduncle actually, George Gamble Angle, uh, in 1926 27, exactly when the story was, was written. So, of course, most of the events that are going to be recorded in both The Horror and Clay in Part 2, which is the story of Inspector Legrasse, were set much earlier, right? Um, you know, about a decade prior to, to this. So, um, he's already a pretty or, or decade or two, right? So it goes back to 1908, actually, the Grasse uh, notes. But the, the experiences recorded in part one are, go back about a decade. And, um, you know, his are already pretty old when he's coming across this Cthulhu cult stuff. Um, 92 is when he died. Uh, now, his death is really mysterious and, and kind of interesting. He's, he dies kind of cutting through an alley, you know, in the waterways of, of Providence. I guess so. Um, this, this, I guess is this, it's not really set explicitly in Arkham. I don't think this guy's of Boston, uh, angles in Providence. So, um, but anyways, uh, Providence, Arkham, you know, they're kind of similar places in Lovecraft's uh, geography. Um, this geography is explored in a lot of detail, actually, in of all places, uh, the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath which we'll talk about shortly in, you know, in a couple of weeks. Um, of course, he dies after... Now, I don't know. So there's witnesses to this account, but he was, quote, jostled by a nautical-looking Negro, so a black sailor, essentially, as he was kind of cutting through these alleys. Um, but, you know, it seems he just died. He was an old man, so there wasn't much mystery to it, but there was a little bit of a subtext that maybe he was knocked off by this... This guy, who we assume would have been part of this cult, right? I think that's what we're supposed to get away, from, you know, to think of this um, aspect of the story that he was knocked off, probably because he was knowing a little too much. He figured out he was starting to piece together a little bit too much. Um, so he doesn't have any kids. So our narrator then becomes the the executor of Angle's will, right? So his job is to go through the papers, get, prepare him for depo de depositing in, I guess, the Brown University. A library or wherever these professors uh, 
archives will go. Some will be published by the American Archaeological Society. Um, so there's that stuff. But there's also this one box, right? And on the box, it's called a Cthulhu cult. That's what he calls it. Uh, it's like a bunch of documents. And in there, is a, it's, it's, it's a lockbox, right? And he had to, like, find the key. The key was lost somewhere. He finally found the key, opened this up, and inside this box is this bas-relief and these documents. And he thinks this is what's really disturbed the mind of this old man. Quote, I, and he actually thinks that it was almost a malevolent individual who may have sent this bas-relief to him, right? A bas-relief, of course, is a, is a relief sculpture, right, with a very shallow carving, a very shallow card, like a coin, right, is, is a bas-relief. Um, but it's a, it's a relatively small one, but it, it must have freaked out Angle and, and contributed to his end-of-life anxieties. Um, of course, art plays a pretty big role in this story. It's something we've come back to a lot in this this podcast. And of course, we've got Pickman's model coming up as, a, as another story written around this time period, which emphasizes the theme of art. Art will be there, of course, in the Mansions of Madness, it's there to a certain degree and uh, what's the other one I'm thinking of shadow at a time it's he's never far from his mind he's very much interested in art especially modern art modernism right for all he complains about modernism in his letters he certainly thinks a lot about modern art he's a bit bothered by it I think I, I think it's uh, showing I mean historically when you think about modern art it's hard not to see the connection between like modern science and this breakdown of of, re, of reality and this kind of confidence in social institutions and, and realism with with the way modern art emerged, modernism and art emerged, right? It's like the world is not really understandable, so art should then expose something deeper, some deeper emotional meanings, perhaps, and that's why you get, you know, cubism, futurism, uh, expressionism early on in modernism, you have like expressionism, impressionism, those things. I mean impressionism, expressionism is a little bit later. Um, but they're all dealing with like deeper internal emotions and things like that. Uh, he actually mentions, calls out cubism and futurism here directly when talking about this bas-relief, writing, the bas-relief was a rough rectangular, less than an inch thick and about five by six inches in area, obviously of modern origin. Its designs, however, were far from modern in atmosphere and suggestion, for although the vagaries of cubism and futurism are many and wild, they do not often reproduce that cryptic regularity which lurks in prehistoric writing, end quote. So this is kind of like influenced by that, but also a little bit more ancient in, in, I guess, in form. But it's modernly, it's, it's clearly a new thing. It's not old. It's not thousands of years old, right? So it's got like this image of, of Cthulhu, right? And it's got this writing, this ancient writing underneath it, these hieroglyphics, hieroglyphics. Um, and then this monster or, or quote, a symbol representing a monster of the form that only a deceased fancy can conceive, right? And he starts to describe, of course, the, the image of Cthulhu we all, we all are familiar with, octopus, a dragon, and human caricature morph together in some way. He also gets, there's a background to it which shows this cyclopean architecture, which we later learn to be relay. So whoever made this is, is privy to some kind of knowledge. And much of the mystery of the horror in clay is how this artist is able to know something that's, you know, acquire this knowledge, which we know by the end of the story to be real, to be drawn from life in some way, but not drawn from his own personal experiences. And where does he get them from? Well, dreams. Dreams are the, the answer.
So that's the bas-relief. In addition to that, we have the writings, which are it's a mix of different things. It's some of Engel's own narratives, his own kind of notes um, in his own hand, but also a bunch of press cuttings. And a lot of this will be covered in, all of it will be discussed in parts one and two. It's all drawn from our narrator's analysis and reading of these, these folders. Uh, all the main document titled Cthulhu Cult, right? These are his notes. The main part is, it's, it's, there's main two parts. The first is the dream and dream work of H.A. Wilcox um, from Providence, Rhode Island. And, and that's dated 1925. Um, and so that's just one year before Engel's death, right? So this came really late in his life. Also, I think it was a decade. I was thinking something about 1915 or so. But maybe not. Nope. I, I screwed that up. Must have been from another story. But definitely when we get farther back, the story of Lagrasse goes back actually a couple decades. So that's uh, the narrative of Inspector John R. Lagrasse from New Orleans in 1908. Um, and then there's all these other notes and things. And we also have part of his bibliography, right? Citations from books, theosophical books, magazines. Uh, and much of this is drawn from, these are real books, right? The two that are highlighted here are Murray's Witch Cult in Western Europe, which Lovecraft name drops as often as he can. And um, the other is is The Golden Bow by, uh, what's his first name? Uh, Sir James George Fraser. So the whole name of this book is A Golden Bow, A Study in Magic and Religion. It's actually multi-volumes. It was published over uh, a decade from 1906 to 1915 in about 12 volumes. And he is, uh, he's an anthropologist, so he's not a theosophist himself, but he, um, you know, studied the reality, the cultural phenomenon of mythology. And I think that's a really interesting work to maybe look at. I've never read it, but from the sound of it, it's, it's, it's maybe something we should grapple with if we want to fully understand Lovecraft's perspective i think a lot of us will like read lovecraft stories and then read like other stories by other weird fiction writers at the time but i don't know how many of us actually dig deep into these non-fiction texts that are floating around you know lovecraft everything from the decline of the west to the witch cults in western europe people know about them but i don't know how many of us actually read those anymore and maybe we should right um but they're because they're, they're mentioned here, and I think they maybe be a key to understanding some of Lovecraft's uh, perspectives. Um, so, anyways, we get uh, the story then of Wilcox first. That's what's given first here, even though it, it comes later in the story. It's it's kind of what introduces uh, Angle into the Cthulhu cult, right? The the Lagrasse stuff was something he was exposed to earlier, but he just sort of disregarded it as kind of weird stuff, and he put it away. It wasn't until the Wilcox thing emerged that he remembered it and started digging up his old notes about the Lagrasse story. So, um, so Wilcox, right? So this is just a year before he died, a year before Engel um, died in 1926. So this is said in 1925, March 1st, 1925. So this young man, this artist, goes to see Engel with this bas-relief. And he basically is asking, like, what do these characters mean? What do these hieroglyphics mean? And, you know, Angle's attitude is, well, you know, you wrote them, right? You drew them. But he, he seems to have had some kind of knowledge through his dreams. And he created this from his dream. 
Um, now, Wilcox is a bit of a weirdo, kind of like uh, Pickman later on in Pickman's model. Someone who's kind of known in artistic circles of Providence. For Pickman, it's Boston. But it's sort of deemed kind of weird and a bit um, eccentric. Um, Lovecraft writes, Wilcox was a precocious youth of known genius but great eccentricity and had from childhood excited attention through the strange stories and odd dreams he was in the habit of relating. He called himself psychically hypersensitive, but the staid folk of the ancient commercial city dismissed him as merely queer. Never mingling much with this kind, he had dropped gradually from social visibility, and it was now known only to a small group of aesthetics from other towns. Even the Providence Art Club, anxious to preserve its conservatism, had found him quite hopeless. Very similar to the story we get from Pickman of someone who was deemed talented and interesting, but a little bit too weird for polite society. So Wilcox comes to Angle then for help, um, because, you know, it's, it's archaeology, it's language, so... Um, he says, I want to know what this is. And he admits he dreamed the bas-relief. He dreamed uh, this image that he later reproduced. That's why it's modern, but it has this kind of ancient text that he can't um, decipher. Now, he doesn't know much about this, this writing on the bas-relief that he dreamed, but he's able to pronounce uh, a couple characters, a couple sounds, and that's Cthulhu Fatagan. Right, so that's uh, that's going to come up again, and that's going to be the mnemonic that is going to help Angle connect Wilcox to this Lagrasse stuff in the next part. In fact, that's exactly what Lovecraft writes here. Quote: This verbal jumble was the key to the recollection, with excited and disturbed Professor Angle. He questioned the sculptor with scientific minuteness and studied with almost frantic intensity the bas-relief on which the youth had found himself working, chilled and clad only in nightclothes when waking had still been bewilderingly over him. Um, now, he, we're told here that Engel already is able to connect this, this phrase and this image to, quote, strange cults or societies that Wilcox couldn't have had connection to, but he somehow does, right? And again, this is foreshadowing the other part of the story, the, the Inspector Lagrasse story. Um, but he, we get a lot of detail here about what Angle's sort of already privy to. Um, stuff that he didn't take seriously before, but now is kind of forced to by Wilcox's uh, revelation, to, for lack of a better word. Um, you know, Angle even sort of believes that maybe Wilcox here is a bit of a cultist himself uh, connected to this. Um, but there's these two phrases that we're told are also not just Cthulhu Fatagen, but there's also two other phrases that are associated with this cult and that's Cthulhu which of course we've already been exposed to but Relay as well Relay ultimately we know is the city of, of Cthulhu the underground city or the underwater city um, so he begins to kind of investigate and, and have these sessions with Wilcox um, and begins to investigate his dreams telling stories of it and you know getting him to come by and, and tell the stories of his dreams and, and visit regularly um, but uh, Wilcox keeps having these really really weird incidences that that go so far as actually disturbing the neighbors um, you know he's always been kind of sensitive he if you remember from supernatural horn literature there's this idea that there's those of us who are sensitive who are kind of privy to uh, a layer of reality beyond our own existence and that's why we like horror and that's why we like the supernatural weird fiction uh, not everyone is going to have that and Wilcox is definitely one of those people that would have been the, the sen psychologically sensitive. He had childhood dreams, for instance, 
Um, but these dreams are special. They're of a distinct type and they're repetitive. And as we'll find out later, they're associated with weird events all over the world. Um, uh, so, you know, in fact, at one of these times, he dreamed so much that he disturbs his neighbors. Quote, he cried out in the night, aroused from several other artists in the building, and had manifest since then only alternations of consciousness and delirium. My uncle at once telephoned the family and from that time forward kept close watch on the case, calling often at the Thayer Street office of Dr. Toby, whom he learned to be in charge. So, again, Angle's getting more and more drawn in. Remember, Angle's super old at this time, but he's spry enough to kind of investigate this Wilcox mystery. Um, now, and suddenly, though, on April 2nd, these dreams end and the, like all this weirdness ends. So it was from March 22nd to April 2nd that Wilcox had these dreams repetitively, these nightmares that where he produced the bar relief. He had these sort of revelations just in that like two week period of time. Um, and he's just fine after that. He stops having the visions. And that sort of ends the first part of Angle's account of his investigation, right? But it's not the only thing interesting in this part. And that is uh, Angle was able to dig around and find that a lot of weird stuff was going around in the world in those two weeks of time from March 22nd to, to April 2nd, right? In fact, it, he, you know, he actually hired a cutting agency which would cut up news, you know, probably do cuttings of newspapers all over the world, right? It's before the internet. So if you wanted to, you know, find out information about, you know, a person or an event from many different newspapers around the world, you'd hire an agency like this that would, you know, look at all the world's newspapers and, and cut up things within a certain search criterion. Actually, I think it would be a fun job to work for one of these agencies. Um, but, uh, so we actually get this. Uh, he he dug. He he had a, he searched everywhere from February twenty eighth to April second, um, and he finds that a lot of people were having weird dreams, and there's just weird events all over the world. Um, dreams of others and events that seem to come from those those dreams. The point being, of course, that Wilcox wasn't the only one affected by this. Uh, everyone who is sort of sensitive, artists, poets, creative people, they're the ones who seem to have been hit hardest by it. And so the last paragraph of a studying a horn clay, sorry, a horn clay, is great. It's, uh, it goes like this: "Quote the press cuttings, as I intimated, touched on the cases of panic, mania, and eccentricity during the given period. Professor Angle must have employed a cutting bureau, for the numbers of extracts were tremendous, and the sources scattered throughout the globe. Here was a nocturnal suicide in London, where a lone sleeper had leaped from a window after a shocking cry." Here, likewise, a rambling letter to the editor of a paper in South America, where a fanatic deduces a dire future from visions he had seen. A despatch from California describes a theosophic colony as donning white robes and moss for some glorious fulfillment which never arrives, whilst items from India speak guardedly of serious native unrest towards the end of March. Voodoo orgies multiplied in Haiti. An African outpost report ominous mutterings. American officers in the Philippines find certain tribes bothersome around this time. And New York policemen are mobbed by hysterical Levantines in the night of March 22 and 23. The west of Ireland, too, is full of wild rumors and legendary, and a fantastic painter named Ardos Bonnot hangs a blasphemous dream landscape in a pal saloon of 1926. And so numerous are the recorded troubles in insane asylums that only a miracle could have stopped the medical fraternity from noticing strange parallels and drawing mystified conclusions. A weird bunch of cuttings all told, and I can at this date scarcely envision 
the callous rationalism with which I set them aside. But I was then convinced that young Wilcox had known the older matters mentioned by the professor. So that's the first part of the story. Um, and the older matters are the story of Inspector Lacoste, two, almost two decades earlier. But I want to stop and think about these happenings around the world. Um, I guess I heard somewhere, maybe it was from the, from another podcast, but that, that some of these are actually drawn from life, that these were actually real accounts, like some of these earthquakes and things that happened were real things that, that Lovecraft kind of incorporated into his story. Uh, or if they're all made up, it doesn't matter. It's, the point here is that this is the global proletariat, right? And I think that's maybe even Lovecraft's not aware he's doing it, but he's talking about the exploited masses of the world, right? Uh, you know, the kind of things that W.B. Du Bois talks about at the end of Black Reconstruction in America, right? This this global racial class division that's divided up the world, right, between the those in power and those not. It's it's not just the psychologically sensitive. It's there there some of them are mentioned here, right? Our French artist, for instance, or maybe this nocturnal suicide in London, um, and others, and people like Wilcox. But most of these are this global working class, right? The, the colonial subjects, indigenous people. They're the ones most attuned to this. And what, you know, what's striking is like Lovecraft makes such a big deal of this like sensitivity that you must have to be aware of these things. And these people are, right? They, it's, it's almost like an anti-racist subtext when you kind of scratch under the surface here. It's like that these people are actually more sensitive they're better at this stuff than the bourgeois elite right the the bourgeois people in the center who are so educated and desensitized to this part of life that that they're oblivious to it they can't dream anymore but these people can right now it's not till we get to the lagrasse story that we find out why they are so interested in this and it's because it's liberatory and that's what i'm going to talk about in the next episode uh, I'm not going to go much farther into the story now. I'm going to talk about part two and, and part three. Part three is uh, just as interesting, but a little bit more of a wrap-up. Uh, I think part two is the, is the key to this whole story and, and the important part for me, which is why, do this, why is this global proletariat so interested and so attuned to the Cthulhu cult and the Cthulhu's awakening? And it's because he offers something. It's a promise imagined or real it's a promise and it's really really revolutionary and it's you know we, we can't detach the story from the global unrest in the period after world war one you know nationalist movements anti-imperialist movements revolutionary movements from the soviet union to to latin america to to china this many-headed hydra that lovecraft is hinting at here in these clippings is alive and well in various revolutionary movements around the world. And, and Cthulhu is, is an inspiration for revolution um, in, a, in, a, in a very strange, strange way. Although I think Lovecraft's not fully conscious of it all the time, but he is very smart and he, he often seems to know what he's doing. I, sometimes I don't know how much this working class narrative I'm, I'm trying to get at through Lovecraft is is on the top of his mind or it's in the subtext or if he's just not aware of what he's doing all the time if if his own prejudice can't allow him to to see how radical the story is at times um 
And I think a lot of readers don't realize how radical this story is, but more and more people I think are coming aware of this. Um, so anyways, in the next episode, I'll finish up my thoughts about the Call of Cthulhu, look at parts uh, two and three, um, tell you about the rest of the story and, and, and tell you how I think this all uh, comes together into being a story of, of radical um, revolutionary imagining and dreaming. So I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, so I will actually I'll record that tomorrow. Uh, it, and right away, so it'll be fresh in my mind. But I'm looking forward to it. So I will uh, see you soon. In a, in a few days, I'll upload the second part of this episode so you can hear the rest of this story uh, or my thoughts about the rest of the story. So anyways, thanks for listening. Uh, in the meantime, let me know what you think of Call of Cthulhu, especially the first part. Um, I'm sure there's little details I missed, but... Um, I think in the big picture, I think um, this for me is the most interesting way to read the story. Anyways, it's a great one. If you haven't read it, you really have to. It uh, should be top on your list. So uh, thanks for uh, listening, and I will we'll see you next time as I finish up uh, Call of Cthulhu.